Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting edge, state of the art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. I'm Ryan McMahon sitting in for Jesse Brown for another week. Joining me is Anna McKenzie, child welfare reporter at Indigenous, reporting out of Snunaymuk territory in Nanaimo, BC. Welcome to Shortcuts, Anna. Thank you so much for having me, Ryan. This week on the show, we are going to talk about news out of Kamloops, British Columbia. And for Indigenous people listening, we ask you to take good care in listening to this episode. Today we'll talk about the remains of 215 residential school children that uh, died, untimely deaths while at residential school. We'll look at the mainstream sources that covered it and how we as Indigenous journalists likely would have covered it very differently. And if you're paying attention at all to the conversation around the fallout of residential schools in Canada, you'll probably have heard someone say at some point, the fallout is ongoing. We'll talk about how a controversial bill currently being debated in the Senate will determine a pathway forward from said fallout. Anna, thanks for being here. Yeah, again, Ryan, thank you so much for having me today. This episode is brought to you in part by Alicia Gostkowski, David Wood, Sebastian Laufer, Sophie Kitchen, Chris Thomas-Seaton, Jake Lipohar, Etienne Dupuis, and Anne. 
Hi, I'm Anne, a student in Ottawa, and I support CanadaLand because it provides interesting content on topics that are either not explored enough or at all, and it provides great topics for conversation and debate. Laid at the steps of the institution that contributed to their deaths, a growing memorial to the cherished but unidentified Indigenous children who died at residential schools. The remains of 215 children have been discovered. The discovery of the mass grave is gripping the nation tonight. As genuine as the promise of justice may be, it isn't new and is rarely followed up by any real commitments. By now, I'm sure listeners of this podcast have heard about the mass grave that was found near Kamloops Indian Residential School over this past weekend. I want to hold uh, some space for the grief and maybe consider whether the media has done it right to hold this space as well. Anna, I I haven't been able to talk to one Indigenous person that isn't somehow connected to the story of residential schools in Canada and... It's been a hard couple of days for everyone. And uh, I just want to acknowledge that and say thank you for being here to talk about this as it relates to both our own personal experiences, how we saw this coverage sort of unfold, and uh, how we as Indigenous journalists and storytellers may have done this a bit differently. And I want to preface this by saying that in order to prepare for today's recording, I did go out and talk to residential school survivors in my life. I have a number of um, people in my family and dear friends that I call family to talk about how they experienced uh, the coverage and what they saw, what they liked and what they didn't like. And I think writ large, what I heard is they're grateful that people are now paying attention. And we can honestly say in Canada in 2021, that this is different. We're in a new time, that the mainstream media is actually paying attention. It's a hard story to ignore. You know, we wanted to use this time on the show to, because it's a media criticism show, to look at the way we cover residential schools and Indigenous issues in Canada at large through the lens of residential school survivors. You know, one survivor told me when I talked to them, we told you so. And you know, no one likes that guy. I don't think anyone invites him to the barbecue, Anna, when you have someone at the table that's like, yeah, I told you so. But when the survivor said that to me, it, it struck me as not just accurate, but, but apropos. I mean, sometimes I worry that when we cover this, that the news cycle demands that we cover it while it's in the cycle and then we move on. And Something about that obviously doesn't sit right uh, with me. But also, I wonder about the coverage itself. I mean, a lot of the coverage I saw, a student at J school, you know, would be given an A+. Accurate, timely. It recapped the sort of the historical context and captured what was actually news about this discovery. But it seemed to me to lack the humanity behind the story And I think that has to do with who mainstream media were talking with and and how they were talking with their sources. And so I want to ask you, Anna, what was your experience watching this news break and and the coverage therein uh, over the last uh, handful of days? 
Um, it's been nothing short of difficult, um, a lot of shock, a lot of grief, a lot of truth telling within my own family. But before I you know, speak to my own experience, I just want to say to anybody listening that if you are in need of any support to call the Indian Residential School Survivors Society, it's 1-800-721-0066. They have a 24-7 crisis line right now. Very important to be leaning on each other. And yeah, I woke up in the morning on Friday and I saw this headline and I had just dropped my children off at daycare and school and my heart just absolutely sunk. And I called my partner, who's also Indigenous, and yeah, we were both shocked, hurt, and I just knew in that moment that this was going to be a real game changer. But in terms of the grief, we're still very much sitting in it. And as a reporter, it's been really, really difficult to reconcile as a storyteller, how do I approach this in a good way? How do I tell our story in a good way? And how do I honor the community um, that is uh, suffering right now um, with the findings of the Kamloops Indian Residential School? You know, I, I can't help but notice that a lot of the coverage that we continue to see in Canada borders on Indigenous 101. Mm-hmm. Like in the Globe and Mail, we saw questions like who ran residential schools in Canada and how many people died in residential schools. And in the National Post, we had an outline as to, you know, some of the reasons why Indigenous children died at these schools. Disease, bad medical care, accidents. You know, Sir John A. Macdonald defenders will say, well, he was a man of his time and he had a vision for Canada. He meant... He meant no harm, but but obviously the harm has happened and it's unfair to judge. And we, you know, we keep it in the past. And these Indigenous 101 pieces that we invariably see during discoveries like this, I wonder how and if we can get past Indigenous 101 pieces and get into the actual, the nitty gritty, the questions that we as Indigenous people have, like, where is the piece that asks if any of the people responsible for these schools will ever face the justice system. Mm-hmm. You know, we have questions in Indian country that are far different than questions that Joe Canada has or Janet Canada has. <laughs> and we never see these pieces. What are your thoughts on the types of pieces that you saw over the last handful of days? Or, or what did you read? Well, I want to share the words from my coworker, Kelsey um, Kilwana at Indigenews. And in our editorial meeting this week, she was speaking about how triggering black and white photos can be and how triggering photos of the residential school itself can be um, for survivors, intergenerational survivors. And the reason for that is it keeps it in the past when for us, it's very much at the forefront of our lived realities. We are the descendants of residential school survivors. My father was a residential school survivor and so were his parents. So it's very much a very real thing that we still carry. And I said that I was shocked and I was shocked by the headline, but I'm not shocked by the findings because we knew, like you said, Ryan, the information has been out there. It's been, it's a call to action in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada and the TRC. So 
another friend of mine posted um, that if you are shocked by this news, then you have a lot of work to do in understanding what has happened here in Canada. And I think that that something's changed. Like Canadians are, I'm hoping, shocked now to the point where going back to Indigenous 101 over and over and over again won't be put on the shoulders of Indigenous people and people will put in the labour and time to really understand the enormity of and violence that has happened in our communities. Right. And I should be clear, I do think that there's a place for Indigenous 101. And would you agree with that, Anna? Like, we're still working through educating this country on where it's been and where it's going. Yeah, I do agree with that. And I find myself all day, every day being Indigenous 101. Like, I am a child welfare reporter. I'm an Indigenous woman. And, you know, that always um, opens the door for questions. And um, so I I do put in a lot of time um, in my own personal life explaining to people things that for us are really basic. But there is value in it. I do agree with that. So often missing from these stories are survivors. And I wonder how different the coverage would be if we talked to them. Mm-hmm. You know, Truth and Reconciliation Commission lasted seven years. The gathering of the testimonials of survivors and survivors speaking for and about those that didn't return home, you know, these are familiar stories with us. And I wonder at what point Canada will be ready to hear those stories. And I wonder, I wonder who should tell those stories. Are we as Indigenous reporters working in Indigenous media, are we ready to tell those stories? And if so, how do you think we might tell those stories? Mm, that's a good question. And we've talked a lot about that in our own newsroom at Indigenous. And uh, when really hard stories um, come to us, um, we I think we really check in with each other and understand that we are a community of reporters. So if somebody doesn't feel like they have the capacity to um, to go for a story, um, that we know that there's a community of reporters that can help support us in that way. But yeah, it's very, very difficult. And I know uh, one of the reporters right now is in the territory of the to come lips to Sequetmec and to be a storyteller in that space while also being a community member. Like it's really, really hard to separate the two. And as a matter of fact, I don't think that you can. I think that that can make you a better storyteller in some ways. But I think as Indigenous reporters, we have a choice to tell our stories, but we also don't have to put ourselves in the space of like, we have to tell these stories or else people aren't, aren't going to find out. Like our stories are sacred. Our stories take time to tell our stories. When I interview somebody, I carry that story with me and I try to carry it in a good way. At Indigenous, we tell our stories in a different way. And that's because we check in with each other. We honor our stories. We honor who we're speaking with. And like you said, Ryan, we don't often go with where the news cycle is at. So there's all these stories being pumped out right now about residential schools, but we've decided collectively to sort of take a step back and approach telling our stories in a different way. Mm. That process outside of the news cycle is fascinating. And I think that, you know, daily news, the 24-hour news cycle as it is, you know, across the ticker, um, the need to publish get that copy into editors uh, on time and on budget and everything else is, I mean, that's the business, right? But mm-hmm. but it does seem to me that our sensibilities in the Indigenous news space is that we have to take the time to, first of all, gain the trust of our sources. And in this particular instance, it's, it's residential school survivors. And, 
And, and it's not just about trust, but it's about the way we make the ask. A thing that I've learned through a number of years is that, you know, offering protocol to our sources does not provide us the right to tell the story. It provides the opportunity. And so if I were to go to an editor and say, well, this is what I'm working on. I'm going to work with three survivors, uh, compare their experiences and their stories and connect them back to Kamloops. I would need time to do that. I would need space to do that. I couldn't tell the editor when I could get that piece in because it might take me five, eight, ten visits to one survivor mm -hmm. to get to the story that they're hoping to tell. And then when I'm done telling that story, that story, when it's written, would go back to the survivor to see if they're okay with me sharing what is inside of there. If they have any second thoughts, do they have anything they would like taken out of the story that they shared? I mean, it's, it's, it's a complicated relationship that we have with our sources and with our people because we need to do right by our people. What are your thoughts on the way we are able to access these stories uniquely in our communities? And is it our responsibility to help mainstream media find similar connections to these types of stories? Are we as Indigenous journalists able to help publishers and news organizations do that? Is this work they should be doing on their own somehow, some way? And if so, what does that work even look like? Mm. So maybe I can situate myself as a reporter and sort of story my own experience. And I've been with Indigenous for a year now, and I actually don't have a formal background in journalism. I never went to J school, but over the last year, I've been mentored um, by so many different people, Emily Gilpin, Brandy Morin, uh, Angela Starrett I've spoken with, and as well as um, the journalists on our team. And we have all sort of included our own processes for storytelling. So my background is actually in youth outreach and um, there was a lot of storytelling and trust building that had to happen in that space. So in terms of relationship building, you're right, Ryan, it's different um, than, you know, setting an interview, putting a deadline for noon today. Um, if I don't hear from you, you know, move on to the next story. Journalism has had a long history of extracting stories um, not in a good way in Indigenous communities. And I think that Indigenous journalists can do better. And through our through us telling our stories, my hopes are that non-Indigenous journalists can familiarize themselves a little bit more with trauma-informed reporting. And for us, for me, it's about building that relationship. It's about going into community. Um, it's about respecting the protocol of that community. It's about listening and not having the pressure just be on one, you know, one interview or one session and, and then honoring that story once I receive it. And most of my interviews um, have been over the phone or via Zoom because of the pandemic. But in the interviews I've had in person, I've gifted tobacco or on the phone, I've said, um, after this interview, I'm going to smudge. And if I were with you, um, my process would be to gift you tobacco for the gift of your time. And then also checking in afterwards with them. How was that interview? Did I get everything right? Is this, am I accurately representing what you said? And I think that that's really important because our stories have been so misrepresented, um, not only in journalism, but in media and in education. That's really interesting you say that. You know, there's, I think we could dig through uh, all of the major newspapers in Canada and find pretty egregious examples of 
Canadian apologists, you know, looking to defend the country. And so my question really is coming from a place of trying really hard to imagine how the Globe and Mail, the Toronto Star, the National Post might be able to do that work. Because, for example, the National Post, as pointed out by a very interesting Twitter thread by Dr. Ian Mosby, we'll link to it in the show notes for people to see, but Dr. Mosby highlights how the National Post is actually a major perpetrator of residential school denialism. Mm. This has contributed largely to how Joe and Janet Canada understand or don't understand the country. And, you know, we did see some Indigenous voices rise to the top uh, over this past week. You know, we saw Cindy Blackstock, who is the executive director of First Nations Child and Family Caring Society, on the morning show on CBC here in Toronto. Perry Bellegarde, of course, the National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. We saw many uh, regional chiefs, you know, speaking to their local and regional media. And I'm happy that the likes of Cindy Blackstock and others find their voice in, in mainstream media. But what I'm always wondering is, you know, we throw the same small handful of people in front of national media. Are we missing the chance to call on elders, survivors, and other community members at times like this to really nail down into the complexity and the nuance of the stories? I think that those stories will come forward. And the people that have spoken, uh, Regional Chief Terry Teege, Cindy Blackstock, they are well-versed in speaking to the media and they are leaders in the space. Um, I think it's going to take time for survivors, intergenerational survivors to come forward and tell their stories. And for us at Indigenous as journalists and as storytellers, we're beginning that process by situating ourselves, um, by writing our own personal essays, op-eds on who we are, how we situate ourselves in this before we dive into the more journalistic style stories. So I think that over the course of the next um, number of years, there's going to be a rise of Indigenous journalists and storytellers. Uh, we can see that at Indigenous, we see that at APTN, we see that, you know, at CBC. Mm-hmm. And I, I just think that we're going to continue to gather momentum. But for us, I think it's more of a choice to participate um, in the conversation right now, given the amount of trauma um, and grief that a lot of us are experiencing right now. When you read stories about yourself, you see a reflection of yourself in the media as something negative, as something violent. You start to believe that and you start to internalize that. So it's been a really important part of my practice to elevate and lift up the stories of Indigenous children and youth. You know, you're absolutely right, Ryan, and the stories told in the media historically in Canada are woven into the fabric of um, the narrative of Canada. And I think of the book, and I I often refer to it, Seeing Red, A History of Natives in Canadian Newspapers Mm -hmm. by Anderson and Robertson. And that really stories all the different ways, not only residential schools, but the way that Canada's story has really been framed um, as a denial or um, to perpetuate stereotypes against Indigenous peoples, Indigenous women, um, Indigenous youth. I really appreciate your point that perhaps we aren't there yet. Perhaps it's not the best idea to put residential school survivors in front of media um, just in a just in a like an open conversation kind of way like the care and the understanding and the lack thereof probably puts survivors themselves and their families and those intimately connected to these stories 
probably puts them in harm's way. And I, I think of those that so often do step up to the microphone and we're very grateful for them, the likes of Cindy Blackstock and others who is literally a superhero in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you know, Anna, the interview I'm actually waiting for Cindy Blackstock to do with CBC is like, you just picture Matt Galloway being like, so Cindy, how do you select the suit you're going to wear when Canada <laughs> takes you to court? That's the interview we need Get her booked. Galloway, do your job. We all want to know how Cindy selects her suits to fight Carolyn Bennett and Justin Trudeau in court. There's the interview we need. I want to bring this home on this last question. And it stems from a Twitter thread from Leonard Monkman, an Indigenous journalist at CBC Manitoba, who was being asked questions by a student journalist. And the question was, should non-Indigenous journalists cover Indigenous stories? His short answer is yes. They should cover our communities, but they need to minimize the damage and harm that has been done to our people through the media. Would you agree with that answer? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that we need our allies to support us in our reporting work. And I work very closely with Brielle Morgan at Indigenous, but there needs to be I think just a total reframing of how we're approaching telling Indigenous people's stories so that it's trauma-informed. And so when you're sitting down with a residential school survivor or you're sitting down with an Indigenous child or a youth who has experience in care, you're not causing more harm and you're telling their story and holding their story in a good way and telling it to the world in a good way and in a real way. Thanks for taking the time to um, uh, help me work through some of these questions and think a little bit more deeply about how we can do better and how we can tell the stories of residential school survivors through minimizing harm and but but nailing down into the nuance and the complexity i i appreciate you um making the space for that conversation okay anna on this show we like to duly note stories that we want to bring attention to to amplify or even to critique stories that people may not have seen or may have missed Uh, What did you bring us this week to duly note? So this week, I actually brought a story from my colleague at Indigenous, Kelsey Kilana, and her story is Silk's journalist shares how she'll report on Kamloops Indian Residential School. And the deck for that story is I speak as a mother, says Kelsey Kilana. And I brought that story forward because it personalizes Kelsey's story and experience with hearing the news of the children found at the Kamloops Indian Residential School. And we spoke about this on Monday, about how as a newsroom we were going to approach this news. And uh, it was put forward that um, as a way of grounding ourselves that we tell our stories and we share our stories. And what I love about that idea is that journalism, in the space of journalism, um, we're meant to be objective. And we talk about this all the time in our newsroom, like nobody is objective. And why is it that Indigenous people, when we share our opinions or when we do an op-ed or if we you know, include um, a little piece of ourselves in the story, um, that all of a sudden we're subjective or we're more of activists than we are as storytellers and journalists. So I love this story because it grounds Kelsey in her work. It empowers us as um, as a team and really shares um, her story before she is going to allow herself as a journalist, I think, to dive into some other stories down the road. And so that's what I'm going to be working on as well as just doing an op-ed in my own um, experience with the news as well as how it's impacted my family and I. Mm. Duly noted. 
I have one. We received word this week that the Edmonton CFL team, the formerly known Edmonton E-Words, have changed their name to the Edmonton Elks. And we don't talk about sports on Canada land because Jesse Brown hates them. Uh, (laughs) But let me just say that uh, back when Strombo was on TV, he had me on to do a video of a funny one take, no edits, kind of straight to camera talking about the Edmonton E-Words call for a name change uh, from from the Inuit community. And, you know, at that time I joked around about a bunch of different names the Edmonton pipe layers, the Edmonton oil barons, like it was all just right in front of them. They could have ran with that. Uh, And I've never received more death threats and angry email ever. I didn't know Canada had so many CFL football fans. And so congratulations to the Edmonton CFL team for changing their names to the Edmonton Elks. Uh, You have the alliteration. Hopefully no team changes their name to the wolves because wolves eat elk and then you would lose the football game. That's all I have. Duly noted. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. All right. In our first segment, we talked a little bit about how to broaden the conversation around Indian residential schools in Canada, that we felt like perhaps some of the context, some of the nuance often gets left behind or is not seen at all. So we're going to try to do this through another story and perhaps a story you've not heard of. One story that has flown under the radar 
for the duration of the story is Bill C-15. It's a bill that looks to align Canadian law to the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, or UNDRIP. It's uh, currently just passed its third reading, and it's now in front of the Senate for consideration. Now, we've seen this bill get close before. Uh, Romeo Saganash's private member's bill in 2018 got all the way to third reading. Then Parliament shut down in 2019 for an election, killed the bill. This bill might be doomed if this Parliament gets shut down again and the bill dies. Now, I want to say there's a lot of discussion and debate around Bill C-15. Some Indigenous groups are for it, some are against. Some say it goes too far, some say it goes not far enough. Provincial territorial organizations are calling for the wide adoption of it. Some are not. Some indigenous communities and nations themselves are for it. Others are against it. There is no unanimous consent, and critics of the bill say that's why this thing is trouble. So I want to say, first and foremost, we don't often talk about bills in Indian country. We don't really pay attention all that much, frankly, at least me and my friends. Uh, that are indigenous. But this one seems to be important. And you were paying attention to Bill C-15. You recently wrote a piece about how the Urban Native Youth Association president, Matthew Norris, connects the urgency of UNDRIP to child welfare. So something that Matthew said during the Standing Committee on Aboriginal Peoples discussion on Bill C-15 is that Indigenous youth are continuing to fall through the safety nets of our society. And the other connection that he made um, that I found to be really powerful is that our communities hold the knowledge and expertise to overcome these issues. We just need to be empowered to do so. And the United Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People really holds so many tools that we can take and run with and we just need the support um, of Canada to implement this on the federal um, level, even though, um, you know, it, it would just really be a framework. But we as Indigenous people, we have the knowledge to do that. Um, and if we are wanting to transform, for example, the child welfare system, or for wanting to transform um, the ways in which Indigenous youth continue to fall through the cracks, then we need to be able to have the tools to lean on to be able to do that work and lead that work. Right. And the adoption of UNDRIP would then mean that Indigenous people have a louder voice at the table as it relates to looking at the legislation and laws that that directly impact and affect our lives on a day-to-day basis, such as child welfare, or give them a louder voice at the table to look at how we might be able to change and transform these systems. And in some areas, some regions that have already done some of this work look at enhancing the delivery mechanisms of things like child welfare. How do you see the adoption of UNDRIP positively impacting the child welfare system? Have you been able to sort of tease out what that might mean? Yeah, well, there's protective factors in UNDRIP um, for Indigenous children and youth. And UNDRIP really hones in on ensuring that Indigenous kids can remain connected to their culture, languages, ways of being, etc. But I do uh, trust in our Indigenous experts that know how to leverage UNDRIP. But as a reporter, as somebody that wants to, you know, share um, the stories of what's happening, not only at a community level, but at a political level. I really think that the implementation of UNDRIP will impact Indigenous kids. Right. And, it, you know, to be clear, there is debate relative to the adoption of UNDRIP. There have been lots of op-eds on the topic of the divide. The Kenora Minor 
in my home territory in Treaty 3 ran a piece titled Treaty 3 Leaders Must Reject Bill C-15. Cuckoo Quase, our friend Maureen Gugu out on the East Coast, ran an opinion piece titled Canadian Implementation of UNDRIP Would Benefit All Treaty People in Atlantic Canada. Toronto Star runs Bill C-15 Brings Economic Stability to Canada. This is par for the course in mainstream media. We're always looking for the ways that that <laughs> we're fighting at the dinner table, uh, which we mm-hmm. often uh, end up doing because, frankly, the complicated nature of Indigenous nations' relationship to Canada itself is really where the trouble comes. And I think writ large what we can say unequivocally is that Bill C-15 is promising. It does create a framework for Indigenous nations and Indigenous peoples and Indigenous governments to look at how they would like to change law and policy and legislation to better serve their communities. And we could also say unequivocally, it's complicated. Mm -hmm. But shying away from it because it's complicated, I think is the wrong move. It's it, it. We need to be brave if we want to transform this country, given what we learned about in Kamloops and what we talked about at the beginning of the show, we need to be brave. We need to be braver. You know, indigenous peoples and groups are disagreeing about the bill and the way they see the bill working or not working is something that we need to give time to, something we need to give space to. Anna, from what you see, where do you think this might land in the coming weeks? I'm really hoping it passes. We need some uplifting news and I would just love to read a headline over the next coming weeks that this has been passed. I know that there's been a lot of labor and effort that's gone into um, putting the bill together and getting it uh, through the House and getting it um, to the Senate. Um, A lot of conversations, a lot of time, a lot of hashing out details. So my hopes are um, that it goes through and um, then we can just continue moving forward from there. The funny thing about all of these headlines is that they're probably all true in part or in whole. And it just really highlights just how complicated our relationship here in Canada is. And it seems like we've reached another point in our very recent history where there are more questions than answers. And it seems like just as we reach a place where we kind of reach a plateau of survival, we reach this even keel of being able to finally catch our breath. We reach a place where we start to get comfortable once again, and we've determined that we can survive this. Knowing what we know, given what we've heard, seeing what we've seen, we can survive this. And then all of a sudden, you read about something like Kamloops, and we're back at a place where There are more questions than answers, and we're reconsidering whether we can continue to move forward. And um, my thoughts and prayers and my good heart and my good mind go out to you and your family, Anna, uh, to everyone out in British Columbia, to all residential school survivors and their families. We send you our good hearts and our good minds. Thanks for being here, Anna. Thank you, Ryan. That is Shortcuts this week. You can email Jesse Brown about the show 
at jesse at canadaland.com. He reads everything you send. We are on Twitter at Canadaland. You can find me at RM Comedy. Anna, where can people find you? You can find me at at Anna Mary underscore MCK on Twitter and on Instagram. I'm at Cree in the City. This episode is produced most excellently by Tiffany Lamb with additional production by Tristan Capacchione. Theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at CFUV.ca. If you like what we do and you'd like to receive ad-free versions of all of our podcasts, please support us by hitting the link in our show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. Thank you for supporting Canadaland. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.